I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the first live recording yes. of the Maris Review, the podcast. So yes. th yes. thank you. That is some good energy already. Um, and what a joy and a delight to be able to listen to Rachel talk about her wonderful book. <laughs> oh, thank you. So this is, yeah, this is officially the Rachel and Maris show now. Yeah, it sure Maris is. Maris and Rachel show. It sure is. <laughs> Rachel. Maris. Let's start out with, with a question about how Too Muchness handles a book tour. <laughs> how are you doing so far? Good. Good. Yeah. Probably a little out of it. Um, that's, that's to be expected. Yeah, that's what I hear. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, but um, I'm pretty extroverted. So, you know, it's working out for me. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, so your book is this really, if you couldn't tell from the intro, it's this really wonderful blend of literary criticism and cultural criticism. And then there's a big personal component to it too. How did you decide how much was too much of yourself <laughs> to give away? I didn't want it to be a memoir that, um, that I was pretty certain about. But I also knew that this topic was so personal to me, so uh, that I was so invested in it, that it would be probably, I mean, impossible and maybe even disingenuous to, to keep myself out of it. Um, so then the question uh, became what anecdotes, what, what stories, what, what parts of myself were in, could I include that were in service of a larger argument? So, um, you know, I wanted I wanted to be really rigorous about that, um, and and this is something that I'm really kind of trying to put into practice when when I write now, you know, uh, 
you know, whatever, whatever I'm writing, whether it's an essay or whether, whether it's a book, I, you know, I think, um, I think memoir and personal testimony is really, really important. And that's one kind of project, but for, at least for what I'm doing with this book, I, uh, I was more interested in using myself as a sort of a case study. Yeah. You know, yeah. just, you know, I'm a pretty handy case study because, <laughs> you know, I live with myself. Um, and so I, so the first, so obviously the first question, the question is always, you know, what's, what's mine to tell? So, you know, there's the ethical, there's, there's the ethical question and, right. you know, how do I, um, you know, how do I suss that out? And then after that, you know, what, um, what stories are, are going to help me get to, get to something more interesting or get to nuance that maybe I wouldn't be able to, um, that I maybe wouldn't be able to arrive at without that. So for example, in chapter nine, Cheat, that's, uh, it was a very difficult chapter to write, but I wanted to write about fallen women and my, Quote unquote. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> and, you know, as, you know, they're sort of under, you know, uh, referred to, um, in, in literature and art. And, um, I knew that my own experiences um, would probably facilitate, uh, hopefully, a more textured discussion. Yeah, and and so you kind of focus in on your own experiences, mm -hmm. and then, you, of course, you pull back and say, well, Anna Karenina didn't have a really happy life <laughs> when, she, when she started um, cheating. It's as if in literature we we long to see, not we, but I don't know, some of us <laughs> long to see these women punished for stepping out of line. Yeah, I mean, it feels it almost kind of feels like a, a fetish, right? Like that there's that people that you know, and this is this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. That um, you know, women are sort of simultaneously uh, held to the, these impossible standards of goodness and purity while simultaneously being condemned for being bad and foul and fallen, you know? So there's this, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you really, I think you can see it um, in, in so many different cultural artifacts, this just urgent, need for for the woman to pay uh or for you know uh for the trans transgression to be uh you know for her to be uh you know sufficiently berated for her to for her to hate herself um it, it's you know and how many of us had to read a scarlet letter in yeah in high school yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I haven't read it in forever, but doesn't doesn't her daughter her daughter refuses to acknowledge her when she's not wearing the A. I mean, it it's I mean, it's like pathological. Like, come on, Nathaniel. Like <laughs> <laughs> So going from there, I some let's talk about just like some some chapters and yeah. uh, what what their themes are because you do a really good job of laying it out in in digestible chunks. Um, I loved the chapter about how your mom 
was also an extreme empath. Oh yes, yeah. And that that is something we don't talk about a lot in that you, know, you can tell her something and she can feel it so hard that yes. she will cry. Yes, uh, to the extent that sometimes I would even have to be uh, careful <laughs> because uh, my best friend from middle school is here and she's like smiling because she like knows, she knows this. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, um, I, you know, it probably would have been a different book if my mom were still here. And that's a very, that's a very strange thing to contend with uh, and something I've been thinking about a lot recently, yeah. of course. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what exactly I might have changed, but it is, it is odd and even a little, it's unsettling, the sort of, I don't want to say liberty, but that's sort of what it is, the, the sort of freedom you get to write about somebody when all of a sudden they're not here to give you a little bit of shit about it, you <laughs> right. know, which, yeah. you know, and, you know, obviously the book is dedicated to her and she, and she knew that and she knew what it was going to be about and she, I think she knew she was going to be in it too because, you know, she knew herself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, but, you know, if she were healthy, obviously there wouldn't be a converse conversation uh, that about body image two weeks before her death. You know, it, it's so that's um, it, it. It is odd, um, and um, it's a it's an odd sort of uh, aspect of of the book, and a very um, a fraught one. Uh, too, uh, for her to be so, um, so just everywhere present in its pages, uh, but, but also, you know, uh, to have, without meaning to sort of Im impacted, influenced the way, the way that it was written, because, um, you know, because she, she died bef uh, as I was writing it. Tell me about writing about literature as a coping mechanism? Oh, I mean, I think because I am very, um, surprise, very emotional. Um, I, um, and I have a very, you know, I have a very hard time uh, getting a handle on it. Um, Often, what I'll turn to is um, exercises of intellectualizing. Sure. Like, if I so if I can intellectualize this, then then maybe that then I feel as if maybe I'm controlling it somehow. It's it's all it's all a delusion because I'm not controlling anything. But um, I think I th I think that's what it's about for me. That when I, uh, when I write about literature, you know, there's, it's often, I'm often writing about something that's resonant in a way, but I'm stepping away from myself, which can often be a relief. Yeah. And I'm, and then I'm sort of, indulging in a sort of rigorous 
acad sort of academic -y practice in order to um, try and get away from my feelings a little bit. Yeah. Which uh, never really happens, but, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I have some guesses, but um, who are some of your favorite characters to examine when, when you were looking for that kind of relief? Oh, let's see. Well, definitely Maggie Tolliver. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yes. I Middlemarch is great. I absolutely endorse reading Middlemarch. Uh, but The Mill on the Floss is my personal favorite George Eliot novel. I, I think Maggie Tolliver is such a wonderful, fascinating heroine. And I, um, I love the way, I mean, she's... She's so, the push and pull between her desire to live in the way that makes the most sense for her, but at the same time wanting so desperately to be loved and just always coming up against this sense that those two things are not compatible. The way that Elliot traces that from the time that she's a little girl to uh, to when she's an adult is I mean it's just so exquisitely observed and um, and I think resonant for for most people I think most people no matter how we're navigating the world are often end up in a in some sort of circumstances where we we feel like we're we're making you know we're we're making concessions. Uh, of authenticity in order to to feel as if we're you know we're going to be accepted I mean that's I think that's something that's pretty human yeah um, and, and you even start out with I, the children's characters that oh, captured yeah. my imagination and yours the most all of the brash little girls yes who yeah. Ramona yep. and Anne of, Green, Anne of Gables, Green Gables, but you prefer Emily of New Moon. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> and I, because because Emily was cooler. She, I wanted to be, like, I wanted to be Emily, even though, and, you know, Emily's got, you know, she's, she's an extremely intense person, too. But, you know, Anne... And can be like a little bit of a tryhard, and like <laughs> I, and I love her so much, but I, it's like, oh, that feels too familiar. And, and it, I, I, it had not occurred to me because I hadn't studied these characters since I loved them so many years ago that their success as people hinges on the idea that they can contain it somehow yeah. as they grow up. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, I mean, that's the case with Anne Shirley. I mean, she's, she's always, you know, sort of, I mean, she's, she's still a sort of exuberant person when she grows older, but she's, she's definitely more demure. Toned it down. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I mean, obviously, like, I mean, the thing is, is that there's being excessive or, too much. I mean, there's. It's not. That's not necessarily fundamentally good or fundamentally right, bad. Right. But so you know, yes, absolutely. We need to like figure out ways to live in the world that are you know empathetic and that take into consideration what the people in our life need from us too. Yeah. Um, but but yes, absolutely. I mean, there there the uh, the sort of unquestioning 
and really uh, sort of culturally uh, uh, culturally systemic uh, stigma that these little girls yes. sort of deal with. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what Ramona was like grown up, like what how she would yeah how she would behave. I is she like a character on Girls or yeah is she like yeah yeah? Did she just like go Lena Dunham or like? And then what does that make Beezus? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Another conversation yeah. for another time. <laughs> yeah. um, another thing that you talk about in the book so much that is like, the, the metaphor can't be any clearer or stark is the corset. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That the <laughs> women in the Victorian era, which is the, the era which you write about mm -hmm. so well, it, it, were literally contorting themselves to fit into an idea of what that a, a woman should be. Right. Yeah, I, you know, and I don't, so somebody who specifically was you know, maybe a historian of, of, uh, of clothing uh, would be able to speak to this in a way that, that I can, cannot, but, Yes, absolutely. I mean, the w the ways that um, that women were. I mean, the things that women wore. I mean, the extremely heavy. I mean, the corset and then the extremely heavy skirts, the petticoats. I mean, there was you. I mean, it, it really your your mobility was really pretty uh, impeded because you really couldn't go anywhere fast. You couldn't probably even couldn't turn around quickly. Um, and, you know, and, and then, you know, there are all, you know, we have these references and jokes about fainting couches because, you know, if you're pulled up like this all of the time, it's going to be a little hard to, to draw deep breath. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, it, it, it's it's really uh, you know there's I mean there's almost something like you know not to you know not to read too much into it but the w but if you look at um, conduct books from the time I mean the way yeah. that they're so so granular in the way that they talk about every single body part I mean it it really does it you know the um, the industrial revolution was contemporary with the, right. the period and sort of like, you know, we're treating, you know, we're treating our bodies. And this is something that I, um, if you all haven't listened to this wonderful podcast, The Fuck Boys of Literature, hosted by Emily Edwards. So she's so brilliant. And we were talking about this, that you, that you, that women were treating their bodies like machines and sort of calibrating uh, them carefully. And this, but this is, you know, this is also not something that that has stopped. It didn't start in the Victorian period. It's, but there were certain ways that uh, there are certain practices that are just very jarring to read about. Do we have any questions from the audience? I'll just give you like the heads up that it's going to happen. If you want to just get your question ready, because um, I did want to ask you one more question about hysteria. Which you, I mean, which you introduced to, to us so so well in the in the introduction. <laughs> yes, sparkling conversation. Um, <laughs> but you go into it further in the book, um, 
about what the definition of it actually is. Will, will, you, will you share with the bookstore? <laughs> yeah, well, so I think, you know, I think that there were probably a lot of different ways that it was described, but a, a common and really just truly wild misconception um, of hysteria. Uh, and you know, of course it was very gender or very essentialist. Um, it, it had entirely to do with the womb. Um, so uh, this, there was this idea that one would become hysterical because their womb was wandering around their body, which, you know, just like a little like like bouncy ball. <laughs> like, uh, if you can't find it, like yeah, I mean, like I don't know, I, I, like it was like what, like up in your neck or like something, <laughs> or like in your heel. Yeah. So, so that, so that was, and I, I think I'm, I'm blanking, but I'm now, but that, that's not, that's not a, a theory that began in the Victorian period. I mean, that, right. that, w that was. Um, had sort of long uh, muddled the minds of uh, of doctors, <laughs> and um, but uh, so we had but we had this sort of misconception floating around, uh, vast uh, wild misconception. Uh, obviously, uh, understandings of gender and sexuality were uh, rigid, binaristic, uh, so. You know that, of course, was a large structural problem uh, to to begin with, um, and then um, and then yeah, you had these just r ridiculous long paragraph long definitions that just laundry lists of of different emotions and activities that might either cause or um, or indicate hysterica and that, hysteria. And that could be anything from like reading too many novels. Like that was a big problem. Women were not supposed to read too many novels because they would just go into a tizzy. Um, and you know, and and you know, if you've read the Yellow Wallpaper, that I mean, that's sort of it, um, which uh, which is a short story by Charlotte Perkins Gilman that is very focused on on uh, hysteria diagnosis and and the f uh, the idea that women really shouldn't be doing a whole lot of intellectual labor at all that that's not good for you um, you know so so these were considered issues um, you know being uh, too being too loud or too giddy or, or, or being too agitated and then you know and then you got into really really uh, problematic situations and and you see this where when Sigmund especially when Sigmund Freud comes along where you know women and girls maybe would be survivors survivors of sexual assault and that rather than you know listen to and trust the their testimony, you would have somebody like Freud, you know, coming up with, you know, some sort of uh, bananas theory that did not, didn't take into consideration, you know, what was really at issue, you know. But we're totally past that yeah, today. Right, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, were there any subjects that were particularly hard for you to touch on in, in your book? 
and then and then maybe things that I'm still yes. yeah um I mean the I guess the blunt answer is is well all of it I mean I don't think I I feel as if I came to any definitive conclusions uh writing the book I you know it was it was for me a sort of an exercise to see if I could trace uh, trace out a sort of map, a, a, a line, and but which is completely and totally based on my very, you know, inevitably skewed and biased and privileged reading of history and literature. So it's only one, inevitably it's only gonna be one reading. And so, you know, that's something that, you know, I had to sort of contend with the entire time that I was writing that to, you know, try to try to suss this issue out and spend time with it and see what I can make of it while also realizing that it's only, you know, well, first of all, there were always going to be more questions and I was never going to be able to address them all. And there was always going to be more reading that I could do and that I wouldn't be able to do it, at least in the time that uh, I had to write this book. Um, but that also, you know, this is, you know, just ultimately going to be my very specific perspective. So I, I needed to sort of think the way that I needed to think about it was, you know, anything but definitive. Just one possible potential narrative that ma that hopefully would maybe branch off into to others and and encourage others and encourage other people to write uh, about histories and testimonies that I am totally ignorant of. In terms of things that were just difficult, um, absolutely, writing about self harm was super hard, uh, which, you know, I, and I just, and I, I said so in the book, I, I, I had never really, I'd written about it a little bit, but never so, um, uh, but never uh, with that sort of intense attention. But, you know, my, my sense, uh, apart from it, it feeling as if it made sense in terms of what I wanted to um, talk about and the sort of arguments I wanted to consider in that chapter. I also, especially when it comes to mental health, mental illness, living with mental illness, I, the way I see it uh, is that if, if I can do it, then I should, because if I can write about it, if I can uh, put, at least one narrative in into the world, uh, then as somebody who has access to therapy and medication, uh, to you know, to healthcare, um, then you know, then I should, then I should do that because there are a lot of people who don't, for whom it doesn't, it's not going to feel nearly as safe to uh, to tell those sorts of stories. So. Um, so I guess that's another type of rigor and, you know, and sort of goes back to, you know, what, you know, what can we give of ourselves and, you know, to give as much as we can. <laughs> the cover. Um, Let's talk about the cover. Um, there are people here who could probably speak to that better than I can. But for my part, 
what happened was my editor sent me uh, a mock-up that pretty much looked just like this with this, uh, with this painting of uh, pre-Raphaelite painting of Helen of Troy uh, and was like, what about this? And it was like, yeah, I mean, this, it's and I and I just love it. I love I love her face. She looks so petulant. She's looks like she's glaring at the the too much on the cover. Um, she's just very fussy, and I like it. <laughs> and I guess you know probably uh, you know Helen of Troy probably had quite a few things to feel fussy about. Uh, I mean, she gets blamed with a lot uh, because you know there were a lot of horny men Wars. who felt like they just simply had to go to war over her, over her, so. So how do you find the power in the monstrosity of literary characters, even if they right. often meet sad, ill-fated ends? No, that's a wonderful question. Yeah, how, yeah, how, especially when you're reading a lot of Victorian novels. Yeah, how do you how do you negotiate that? What where where is the empowerment when yeah when these women end up some when somebody has a story like Tess of the Durbervilles? Um, uh, I'm I, I I it's kind of a spoil. It, it doesn't end well for her. But I think you. <laughs> but this book has been around for a while, so I feel like you can't get too mad at me for saying that. Um, <laughs> um, you know. I, th I think, you know, there are. I think what happens is it's not a, it's not necessarily that those narratives, that those stories, of those characters, that they're that they're strict templates, you know, because because how you know because how could they be? How how could how could somebody uh, who um, you know, first of all, who who lived in such a different context? How how could she be, uh, and for whom you know life and all of these structural inequities just completely fucked over? Like how um, how can you map your life out according to that? And you know, and of course, this is only you know most of these women they're 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 o they're only resonant to a very very particular. Uh, reader because you know they're mainly white cisgender women um so i the way i see it you know i it's maybe it's a little bit of excavation looking for the possibility that's there uh looking for maybe what what sort of potential was there and that wasn't that probably wasn't fulfilled and that probably what didn't end up having room to breathe but that, but maybe there's something there that uh, that we can hold on to and and put to use and and think about and 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 see if if there's a way that it can maybe and see if there's a possibility of it speaking to us in in a way and and so then you know with our sort of relative freedoms. What can we do with that? You know, tell us about your writing process. <sighs> My writing process. <laughs> um, oh, absolutely. I mean, I there were certainly parts that were 
that were easier to write uh, than others. I, you know, but I think it also, there's a sort of ebb and flow for me. So if I am feeling, um, I tend to um, really dig into more uh, conceptual uh, and more critical writing when I really want more of a separation, uh, an emotional separation. And so in those times, I find it much easier to, to work on that. I find it, uh, it's, so for instance, you know, I was, I was writing this book as I was grieving my mother. And so it was very, uh, so if I was really missing my mom, it made sense that it was going to be hard. Even if it didn't have anything to do with my mother, if it was just something that was anecdotal, it was going to be, uh, writing from a personal place was gonna be a little bit harder. Um, and sometimes I just, so then it meant I couldn't, that wasn't something I could work on um, at, that, at that point. Um, I, you know, but I, I do, I find personal writing, I probably find that to be the more difficult thing, the thing that I, um, that I find myself fretting over the most, that I find myself second guessing, because it's, you know, it's important to me, I always want to be fair, I, I know that inevitably I'm, I'm going to be sort of unfair because it's coming, this is something I'm writing from my perspective. Um, so I know that I'm biased and that's, you know, there's a sort of agitation to that and I'm, you know, having, you know, having to push through that to just, you know, do the best that I can. And then also because, you know, I, I think I, I still, I still want anything personal that I write to have a, to be tied to an argument of sorts. So then there's a sort of, that, so that can be kind of tricky because then I'm not just strictly, you know, writing, you know, writing through a particular argument. I'm trying to tell a personal story in a way that evokes something that's more conceptual. So, um, so that can be, yeah, that, that can be very challenging for me, uh, at least, um, uh, to, uh, for better or for worse, to, to do, uh, to do the personal storytelling, to do it justice uh, in a way that's actually going to be productive. How do you connect uh, the past, whether whether it's uh, fictional characters or actual history, with with what's going on now in culture? Um, well, I think the uh, first of all, I'm really nerdy, so. <laughs> I, when one spends a fair amount of time uh, reading and, and uh, you know, eventually, eventually connections are going to arise. But I, I guess, you know, there, I think once you, you have a sense of, of certain trends, certain tropes, certain themes that that tend to be revisited over, uh, over and over, um, you, you start to see 
the way that they've traveled over over the course of you know a century or two and so so all of a sudden you know it's you you look at Roman Quimby and you you see and you think about the way that she would demand to be loved and you think about little Jane Eyre getting you know in that very satisfying moment where she just tells her aunt you're a monster <laughs> because you know I'm just like this little orphan like what is it what is the John Mulaney quote like I'm very small you could and I'm no you can and you can understand you can imagine what the kind of stress I'm under like that's more or less what Jane is saying so like and like and you and you hate me and you make my life miserable so um Oh, we were talking about Joan Mulaney at dinner, and now we're talking about now. It, <laughs> all of Victorian literature eventually yeah. <laughs> goes back to, to Mulaney. <laughs> Come on tour with me, John Mulaney. <laughs> um, um, so, so yeah, so these, so these certain, uh, so the trends, though, in those sorts of moments, you know, they're, uh, you know, of, of course, uh, you know, we have all of these wonderful writers who who do so much fantastic uh, and innovative storytelling, and that can be true. And it can also be true that there's very little that's entirely new. So there are, you know, so we are going to see these sort of revisitations of of whether it's a theme or whether it's a, a sort of a, a certain moment in a text or a character. Why too muchness? Why now? <sighs> why indeed? Uh, <laughs> um, why did I do this? <laughs> um, you know, I, so it, it is, it is the case, you know, I, I think that it is an exigent, exigent topic uh, in this particular moment. Um, but it is also the case that this is not the moment that we were in when, I was first thinking about the book. Uh, I did not know that, we would, well, here we are. Uh, <laughs> uh, and hopefully we'll be out of it soon. But, um, um, you know, it was, from, from a, a personal standpoint, it was, it was something that, it was something that I had been, thinking about you know a little bit here and there and then it i it really it, it is it's it's strange to say but i think sometimes i think it sometimes it does sort of happen like this i i saw a film that i didn't you know didn't care that much for but that gave me this word that that then sort of jangled around in my brain for a while and the the longer and it you know and it never and it never really went away and it was just something that I would I would think about here and there and you know and it, and it might have and maybe if it had just been a word a term that I thought was interesting but didn't feel any sort of personal connection to, then you know, may, then who knows? May, maybe I wouldn't have uh, have felt 
the motivation to write this particular book. But because I because I think there was that um, that intellectual interest that was so uh, so almost bizarrely connected to a very uh, very deeply personal feeling um, that it seemed it seemed to illuminate something. Um, and which I think is one of the most wonderful things about words when we learn, read a turn of phrase or find a word that you, you feel like you, you sensed before you actually knew it. And, um, and because of that, because of that uh, sort of uh, entangling of uh, a personal investment as somebody who, you know, had had has always sort of felt like she was sort of spilling out everywhere and wondered you know well you know what you know what does that sort of mean in a larger cultural context and then to to think well huh there you know there's something and i'm not a, you know i'm i'm there's a ling i'm not a linguist but like there's here's this like linguistic thing that i can sort of chew on for a while and 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 see what where that might lead me and so I I think that is uh, if if I were to land in an origin story, I think I mean I think that that would be it. Thank you, Tim Burton. I guess. <laughs> and thank you, Rachel. <laughs> and thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>